Welcome to the India Fintech Diaries, the only podcast focused exclusively on the Indian fintech market. I'm Elroy. And I'm Himan. In each episode, we dive into the latest trends, ideas, innovations, business models, and personalities that are shaping India's fintech landscape. We also invite amazing guests who are innovators and industry players that are driving the change that is helping make financial services more modern, innovative, and inclusive in India. Come join us as we explore the changing landscape of fintech in India. Welcome back to India Fintech Diaries, the show where we discuss all things Indian fintech. Hi, Emant. What's today's topic of discussion? All right. Today, we continue our exploration of cross-border fintech. And to discuss this topic, we have a very interesting guest with us today. I'm pleased to welcome Pratik Gandhi, co-founder and chief operating officer of Niam, the first global B2B payments unicorn from Southeast Asia. How are you doing, Pratik? I'm good. And firstly, thank you for calling me interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Pratik, you really have had an interesting career, right? Uh, right from working to companies as diverse as Pepsi and Xerox to CFO stints in financial services majors like Citibank, Standard Chartered, Fullerton. Just talk to us a little bit of your interesting background and the journey to co-founding you. Okay, so as you said, right, uh, it was initially always uh, uh, all about working in bigger organizations. So I started with, in fact, a company called Arthur Anderson, which is now defunct and uh, pretty much moved Correct. to Xerox uh, after, you know, just a few months. And then Pepsi was one of my largest stints, uh, five years at that time. And then, you know, City was another big one and then Standard Chartered and then Fullerton. So, you know, all of these were very interesting, uh, you know, large stints. And one thing which is not very well known uh, and I haven't really spoken too much about it, uh, is the fact that uh, I'm, I'm in fact, uh, a two times failed entrepreneur as well. So I, <laughs> I in fact, left uh, uh, both City and Standard Chartered, so two different times, to start a hedge fund, which was focused on Indian equity. And uh, the first time it, uh, you know, didn't work out because of the global financial crisis. The second time, it was another economic event. So, but that whole thing about being an entrepreneur has pretty much always been in the back of my mind. So, you know, the story is like this, that, uh, you know, when I was wanting to do something else, then uh, Fullerton is the company I was working for, but I had basically, I was working out of Bombay and my family was in Singapore. And uh, there was nothing which Fullerton had uh, in Singapore for me. It was a very small outfit. And mm. So they said, why don't you meet up with uh, the CEO of a company that we have just invested in. So Fullerton had just invested in Niam at that time. In fact, it was called Instagram, wasn't even called Niam at that time. And uh, so that was the genesis and sort of uh, Prajit and I hooked it up. It was very, it was a great first meeting and uh, the company was just a few months into operation. Uh, and that's really how it started. And, uh, you know, I joined as the chief business officer you know, went down to head the consumer business. And then eventually, uh, you know, I came into the current role, which uh, essentially looks after most of the backend stuff, which is not very interesting, but still a, a fairly important critical role for the company to have, especially as we grew up. So, I mean, it's it's been a fantastic journey, right? Because when I joined, the valuation was only some $10 million. You know, six, seven years down the line, it's, uh, it's where it is. And I still think we are just scratching the surface. Yeah, absolutely, Pratik. And one thing I have learned from my time in fintech is 
anything that sounds boring or is considered boring is more profitable than anything that sounds more exciting and more fancy so that that has been my learning so uh, pratik we are all quite familiar with the retail cross border payments market but what really astounds me that the global b2b business to business cross border payment transaction values are predicted to be exceeding 150 trillion dollar by end of 2022 now this is a space that people do not know a lot about so can you help us understand the market landscape of the global b2b payments okay so as you said right uh, unlike in the case of the remittance market which is tracked very closely by the world bank there isn't a, a real reliable single source of how you know even to establish how big the market is you you gave me a number of 150 trillion you know somebody might say a completely different number but what we all agree with is the fact that it's running into trillions of dollars the one thing that right. is agreed to by all is the fact that it is completely dominated even today by banks and mm-hmm. to be honest there is a there's a very large segment you know which is of very large transfers uh, uh, so let's say single transactions which are into millions of dollars or half a millions or you know whatever else which really don't belong to fintech i mean those are uh, mm-hmm. very well worked out by the banks in fact these transactions are typically for larger corporations and uh, they also get the right attention uh, you know when dealing with these large banks uh, in terms of pricing customer service etc etc so i i don't think we you know we even want to be in that the place where the banks do a poor job is in smaller value transactions so so maybe ranging right from you know let's say a transaction which could be 100 or even a less than 100 uh, 100 dollars or so equivalent uh, to say you know up to let's say 100000 dollars so these could be in the nature of an e-commerce transaction or you know a, a hotel payment or maybe an sme payment which are not very high in value but you know as far as that company is concerned that's their bread and butter and it is here that the banks are unable to give the right service they're not able to price it right because either their own transaction cost is high or they are just used to you know charging higher profits you know to such uh, category of customers the result finally is that the customer gets a very raw deal so that's where hmm. you know the likes of niam comes in and if you look at the larger landscape at least as far as the fintech is concerned there are many fintechs you know many profess to be payment uh, companies but at the end of the day if you look at it there's only you know very few handful of companies who can say they are giving a global service right otherwise a lot of the smaller ones will end up uh, using companies like us and specifically if you even look at uh, how niam operates i mean to my mind there isn't a single company which is a good competitor to us because one because our breadth is quite a lot so we are you know very very global and second our depth is pretty high as well in terms of uh, just the kind of products that we do as well so we do you know both pay we do payments we do pay ins which means you know we allow customers to collect funds from another country and send it back to their home country and we also offer issuance of cards so mm-hmm. something which is global across these various things is not something that you come across so in my view uh, you know you'll have these regional or country specific fintechs you know which could be doing a good job in their own realm of uh, influence but they don't end up becoming very large you know from a very global perspective so that's where 
you know we come in understood and pratik you specifically touched upon that when it comes to slightly smaller b2b payments that's exactly where banks are not doing a fairly great job if you have to just dive a little deeper to understand what might be the problems uh, that a user a consumer is facing in that particular space how would you list those <laughs> okay so uh, i mean that really is the reason why we exist but it's a very very uh, basic trick question and something that i would actually love to spend uh, hours and hours on but if you look at it from you know just a, a general perspective for one the biggest challenge is the fact that there are different regulations which are involved right so every country tends to have a different set of right. rules on what is allowed what is not allowed and to a certain degree this is not only for the non g10 currencies but there are some g10 currencies like a japan which will also have you know how much money can be brought inside and things like that so so if you look right. at it i'm just going to spend one or two minutes on this one so as a general rule most countries are okay to receive the foreign exchange but they apply a lot of restrictions when payments or outflow of foreign exchange is concerned but even here yeah. there are exceptions to the rule so there are you know like i said there's a japan there's a a china for instance has restrictions even for funds coming in so they have a cap on how much an individual can get in a year or let's say if if funds are being uh, received by a company they have to be backed by some kind of a documentation and invoice etc etc even back i mean in india which is where uh, you guys are based there are some value restrictions on what can be paid for certain kinds of payments so you get the picture it's a it's pretty tightly Correct. controlled sector now when there are restrictions there are actually more restrictions also for who is allowed to operate to receive the funds and you know pay the funds out of a country so you know typically it's the it's the local banks who end up calling the shots on this one and uh, yeah. i can tell you by experience that there are countries where banks actually take undue advantage of the fact that they have full control on or let's say they have the regulatory uh, approval to you know do these kind of transactions so example is in the case of uh, an australia and this is what we faced this is australia hong kong in fact many countries where it's super difficult to even open a bank account for an sme or even someone like yeah. an enemy uh, i i can tell you you know we spent months and months i don't want to name the country to just open a bank account because they were refusing to deal with us there is a country which even for the biggest companies in our sector they have shut down a lot of uh, you know the accounts we just managed to survive because we've got global tie ups so all of this basically ends up you know coming to the fact that you know it's basically it ends up being anti competitive if i were to keep it in a very simple way right and know what happens yeah. when any one or any one set of entities has a dominant competitive position the result of all this is that there are going to be high costs to transfer because you don't have anybody who can challenge this right so you know it's that tina factor there is no alternative and you you've heard of the ridiculous cases where as much as 5 to 10% can be taken by banks on fx charges or as fixed yep, uh, yep. swift fees etc cetera, etc cetera. plus there is a there's a complete lack of transparency so i mean if you look at it they'll they'll not even tell you how much they're charging and because they'll say oh we don't know there's a correspondent bank somewhere in the middle and we have no clue how much they will deduct hmm. so if you look at it there's no impetus to improve the local process because you know it can be slow it can be anything and there's nobody to challenge it because there is no competition so that's where niam comes in because we shake up the system 
because in in countries where there is a local process like in india and in fact many countries now wherever there is a real time payment which is allowed we actually enable that and we do it in a very transparent okay. way we say up front how much is going to cost so it becomes so much easier for the customer now you should also know that in many cases our customer ends up being a few banks as well so you know there are banks okay. who use us uh, you know they could be country banks so they could be regional banks who want to use it on a global basis and we are the ones who power these things uh, for them let's uh, turn the focus on neum for a bit now pratik right i've been a follower of neum right from its instagram days and i think you guys are doing a great job in terms of making cross border payments simpler for enterprises i think for the sake of our audience so can you give us an overview of the product proposition i know you touched upon the types of products that you have but it will be great to just maybe spend a minute or two uh, running through the product propositions and who they are meant for so so we have a very wide variety of the products uh, one of course we continue to have the initial product that we started which is uh, the person to person transfers but it's a very small component right so as you said that's the instant piece we've still retained the brand because that continues to be a strong one in many countries we operate it and connected to that is the sme part of it so look at sme as something which is uh, somewhere in between the larger corporations and uh, individuals because you know there could be many of them which would be small uh, entities but and their requirement is more uh, personal so in that sense we keep it uh, under the retail piece and then of course there is the the counterpart which is which is the payout piece for the larger corporations this could be as i said this could be right from e-commerce companies this could be banks this could be other financial companies or fintechs uh, and basically their requirement is that we don't want to know what the regulations are what the local restrictions are what the reporting requirements are in which right. country we want to move x amount of money from one country to another uh please help us do it so that's a very uh, you know it's a it's a very simple uh, sounding thing but uh, because of the regulatory landscape it becomes quite complicated so and then there is the 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 mirror image of this which is the receive aspect which is that let's say an sme in singapore wishes to collect uh, from their customer in germany and uh, right now their yeah. uh, option is that their customer is going to send a swift Uh, from their bank and it's going to charge them uh, uh, an arm and a leg what we offer them are yeah. accounts which are uh, virtual in nature which can you know basically the customer can use so the customer can give the the local collection in that particular let's say in germany that the, the customer is there we cite the funds and then the sme in singapore can decide whether or not they want to send the money right away into back into singapore or they want to use it for making a payment uh, to some other country so these are the the payout and the pay ins uh, aspect of it the third one is an interesting one as well because that's the card issuance and basically it's the yeah. white label solution for giving cards again many many use cases most uh, predominantly uh, where smes uh, you know want to use it for let's say subscription payments or you know payments of any small nature which are in basically in foreign exchange something which we also did uh, last year we acquired a company called Lexaris and they are in fact the world's second largest issuer of uh, single use credit cards and what that means is they are typically used for payments for 
you know, the, in the travel sector and the hospitality sector. So imagine this as, uh, you know, to give you a, a simple example that uh, uh, let's say you want to go to Thailand and you go to yeah. one of the, you know, websites, let's say an Agoda or something, and you say, I want to book a ticket on Thai Airways. You made the payment via your credit card. So the money has already reached Agoda. You got your ticket from Thai Airways. Right. Now, at some point in time, Agoda has to settle with Thai Airways. The second aspect of it, and that yeah. doesn't have to happen right away. It depends on what the credit terms that Agoda you know, has with uh, Thai Airways. So let's say after a little while, you know, the money has to get paid. Uh, that second leg is what is paid by XRS. And they are a, they are a super specialized company in this area. And uh, they're the second largest in the world for it. And they are, they are, you know, essentially doing a great job in that. So all of these aspects which are payment related are what is really handled uh, by NIAM. Got it. Now, Pratik, you touched upon regulation. And I would like to say, for example, from fintech perspective, I only focus on India. And the regulatory environment is so dynamic that my homepage has become RBI and SEBI yeah. pages because every day there's something yeah. new. <laughs> Now, you have a network which spans 190 plus mm-hmm. countries. So, how do you really manage that regulatory complexity? So, typically, there are local experts that we hire. So, every country will uh, typically have a country manager, a compliance person, and compliance itself is a very large team in our uh, in our company. Right. Uh, we spend a lot on having the technological infrastructure behind it because none of these things can be done so let's say if there's a cap to be maintained for how much uh, has to be spent out or sent out you can't do this manually right so it has to be all done uh, in a fairly hands-off manner so it's a lot of uh, investment that has to be done even on the you know creating that infrastructure to enable this uh, kind of a thing so it's a combination of local expertise which is what we take a good deal of uh, compliance people and uh, you know, a, a fairly robust uh, technological infrastructure. Understood. And you touched upon Pratik, the tech and within uh, the market, I have spoken to a lot of people and there is a lot of respect and appreciation for the tech platform that Neom has built. So can you provide an overview of the technology platform that Neom runs? So it's, uh, it's nothing rocket science, but uh, the one thing that we have done well is the fact that it's completely proprietary. And the other thing is that it's uh, it's very very modular. So let's say I give you the uh, you know the the list of the various products that we have. So if somebody only wants payouts but not pains or cards, then you know it's possible. Or someone only wants cards but not uh, the payouts and pains, it's possible. So it's a it's a completely proprietary thing. We employ the best of uh, our uh, developers and uh, engineers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, behind this. And, uh, you know, in fact, a large component of this is right now based in, in India. Okay. Understood. Understood. And Pratik, when you speak about payments, the next immediate thing, thing that comes to your mind is, of course, fraud. And controlling fraud or mitigating fraud within one jurisdiction is a task unto itself, which every payment firm strives to solve. Now, you are into cross-border payments. So how are you managing fraud, approaching that particular problem and ensuring that it is minimized and mitigated? So, see, the the fraud can be into, uh, you know, it can be a, like a customer fraud of many senses. And then, so, so one of the biggest areas in which we face, by the way, this is very, very regional as well. It's not as widespread right. as you might think it to be. But there are, there are countries uh, like the US, for instance, it is replete with, you know, fraudulent uh, cases. So, 
So I'll, I'll tell you what, what typically happens and that's why it's very difficult to establish a business and we have managed to do it over the last few years of experience. Uh, so what happens is that uh, a customer is allowed to fund our account and say that they give instructions and say that we want to, you know, that particular amount equivalent to be sent to another country. But let's say we do it. Right. As per the local laws, that customer is allowed to withdraw that amount and the, the bank which they have used can actually demand that money back. And the bank is is supposed to do it. And I think that if I'm not mistaken that, uh, you know, there's I think a 72-hour thing or something or maybe even a longer time. I, I forget how much it is now. But it is it is something which the bank is, it's incumbent upon the bank to do it, right? And there is no choice. So the money which we thought was lying with us can be pulled out. And, you know, it's all allowed by the system. It's like, any other normal clothes that you can buy in the US and then return it after using that. It's like that. So now that's a typical fraud which happens. We've also faced fraud in, you know, countries like Australia where, you know, if you use a particular way in which you receive the funds, by the time the ping comes to us, so we don't wait for to actually reconcile the money into our into our bank account, right? It's all done based upon a technological ping, let's say, which has come from the banker side or the local collection side and we assume that the money has already been received or it will come at some point in time but you know people who are smart have at some point in time they figured out that there is a way to beat the system how we get past all this is by building very strong rules of what could be you know what could be a fraudulent transaction so there are systems which are invested in to ensure that uh, you know the the amount seems to be you know completely above board because, see, remember the fact that in a payments world, by the way, this is not just for fintechs. This is like all across banks also. Anything to do with fintech or, or uh, rather payments, regulators are looking to us to make sure that we have strong, robust controls where nothing in the variety of money laundering takes place. It's all above board. If there is a problem of a transaction, it is reported equally quickly, etc., etc. So, you know, we have to perforce invest in the right kind of tools which could be outsourced in many cases but the rules engines could also be created internally uh, to see how you know what seems to be a good uh, above board transaction and what doesn't seem to be a good one so in which case you just stop it and uh, you know just let it pass so over the period of uh, years in fact our our fraud rate has come down tremendously in fact hardly anything at all now you know touch wood and uh, then the second kind of fraud could be in the cards, you know, and again, there are, it, that's yeah. one thing which I think there is more understanding for because even banks have this and, you know, there are well-established rules and regulations which are a part of this. So these are not new, but, you know, basically there'll be some smart person who will figure out something, uh, you know, and they'll surprise you. And then you have to try and stay one step ahead of them at all points in time. Yeah, totally agree, Pratik. It's always kind of some kind of revolutionary arms race right. in that sense. That's been a fascinating discussion on your product offering so far, Pratik. I also want to understand your journey from a startup to Southeast Asia's first B2B payments unicorn. Right. What are some of the challenges that you faced in this journey? Good, good question. I think the challenges are uh, several. Many of them are, are basically related to the regulations, etc. But if you look at it at a higher level, right? What is a company? A company is nothing but an idea and the people behind it. 
And right. from here, in my view, if you have the right sort of questions, you can even make an idea which is not that unique into something that can be successful. So I'd say that, uh, you know, if people are indeed, you know, one of the most important components of, you know, the differentiation between a successful and a not so successful company, then, you know, we, ha- we have, especially when it comes to scaling, uh, we have faced, you know, issues on finding the right talent. And honestly, that problem existed even till last year. And it's logical, right? right? Because, you know, like even, even with the companies I worked for, like we talked about at PepsiCo, City, Stancy, here we don't have to tell the candidate what the company does. There is a branding mm-hmm. that exists. So right. that's not the case in the case of a, uh, a company which is not uh, well-known like us. So branding becomes an issue. So that only became better when we became a unicorn uh, and the company became a little recognized in the market. Then, you know, we started to get a lot of candidates from good companies, you know, and uh, they started to come. So now if you ask me, I think we have a leadership which is more or less in place. I think there are a couple of positions which will get filled up uh, pretty soon. But the process of churn to sort of make sure that the best talent remains is a continuous one. So, which means that, you know, you have to keep identifying the kind of talent that you have, put them into categories. There'll be some which you don't want to lose at any point in time. uh, And you do, you know, much well for them. And then there'll be others who we say, okay, fine, you know, uh, it's okay if they don't stick around for a lot longer and it's okay if they find a better job. Besides that, I think now it's all about how quickly we can do things and, you know, what we want to do. So expand the new geographies for all our products, remain process conscious, efficient, in control, profitable. So all of those things are what will be, I think, the challenges uh, and what we have faced so far. Pratik, also in the last year or two, right, uh, Neum has made some very interesting acquisitions. You talked about the Exodus acquisition that you did in yeah. 2021. Uh, but in 2021, you also acquired Wirecard's India business. And then in 2022, you also acquired right. SoCash. Can you also talk to us about how you're approaching M&A and the value that these acquisitions are now bringing? Oh, I'm, I'm, this is one thing that I'm just so super proud of, right? Because uh, as you said, mm-hmm. we did this one large... Uh, uh, corporation. When I say large, it's definitely in relative terms. And then these two small acquisitions and uh, all of them have been right. super successful, by the way, right? So, in fact, the Xaris, like I said, is, uh, is the second largest issuer of uh, single-use credit cards in the world. And really, the sky is the limit for those because as of now, they are largely focused in Europe and uh, uh, yeah. you know, only recently they've started expanding into Asia and Americas. The other aspect of the f- is is the fact that uh, you know they brought with them not only a great business and of course we bought it at a great time when the travel business was such a hated term but uh, they've also brought with themselves a very good set of talented staff who's now in fact doing well uh, in the larger neom framework then you talk of the the wirecard entity here in uh, in india i can tell you it was a very tactical move on our behalf because, you know, we wanted a license. It would have taken us uh, that much time to get the equivalent license, etc. But the way that, you know, the entire team has come up. And again, like I said, it's it's something which we bought at a time when the whole industry was in the doldrums. So timing was, yeah. uh, you know, pretty good. But I think if, if you've been following, I think we have also managed it well because we've let them be 
we've given them the right kind of uh, authority you know and the independence to basically work with whatever it is that they had given them the support the strength of a large corporation behind them and just see them prosper so cash is too new right now and uh, we do have plans for them as well uh, again in their case we will be you know giving them the flights of imaginations and uh, what we are telling them is whatever it is that you built it doesn't have to be limited to that alone you can actually do more than just this and you know that part of it is uh, something which you know you'll you'll get to hear in in the next few months and years but overall it's it's been a superb journey what it does for us is that it it crashes the time for us to either get a new license or go into a new geography like i'll give you the example of xrs we were we were fringe players in the case of a europe to be honest with you yeah and we did not have the expertise of how to well manage the cards business so we got something which had been in existence for like 18 20 years with all the ups and downs which are a part of the industry they've gone through all the tough times the good times but they are the experts of what they do right and uh, uh, with just this one acquisition we got something which would have taken us years and years to develop so an mm is a very powerful tool right. for us to continue to grow we will continue to use it the only thing is that you know it's it's obviously the right time the right uh, valuation that has to be there and we've always professed the fact that we are out out there in the market looking for more acquisitions that's that's an amazing story prateek because i am also a strong believer that a good mna a successful mna is a pretty much a combination of art and science and the industry is i think filled with a lot of dead bodies which would have been amazing heroes and a lot of biggest of the companies have struggled with actually doing mna and then taking or generating value out of it for all three parties the consumer the acquirer and the acquired so it's amazing now that we have crossed and niam has gone through this very long journey and the industry is also now looking up because we are pretty much and fingers crossed post covid and the travel has picked up so how do you see uh, the cross border b2b payment space shaping up in the future and what's the plan for niam as well a peek into the future i think as far as the industry itself is concerned it's very logical that there'll be some level of consolidation that will happen right because uh, the bigger ones are bound to survive i'd like to call you know i'd like to categorize niam as one of the larger ones and you know we have uh, ours is a fairly good operational business you know we have all ensured to that so you know we don't we don't feel for instance in this uh, you know so called winter for the funding we don't we are not out there in the market looking for funds for instance right we have enough money in the mm-hmm. in the bank you know we are turning profitable so we are not we are not uh, we are not going to be going out and doing things which are stupid we will we will be the long run players in this one last year was another game i think uh, when everyone wanted to uh, have higher valuations everyone wanted to invest in such companies but i think that time has sort of gone by and as i said consolidation will be the name of the game to uh, to start with as far as niam itself is concerned we want to like i said we want to be aggressive in the market but uh, be careful about it also what we don't want to do for instance mna is where they go wrong is if for instance the due diligence hasn't been done properly and there's some you know bunch of skeletons that come out tumbling from the cupboard that you haven't really you had no clue about at that point in time so we want to be clear that we will buy 
companies which are good which give us a very clear advantage in that market and is very very well synchronized with the rest of the strategy that we have definitely more mnas uh, you know are there in the future for us and certainly at some point in time an undefined future <laughs> an ipo uh, very difficult to put a timeline to it i know you know any interview that i do you know this comes up as part of that so very difficult to figure out when that will happen uh, but it's on the minds and when the timing is right we will do it but we are getting ready for it or we are almost ready for it from a back end standpoint anyway that uh, that's absolutely amazing and uh, pratik this has been a great conversation especially in illuminating a corner of the payments market that's not very well known of course niam is very well known but people do not understand how difficult the cross border payments market is and how it works now if based on this conversation as listeners want to get in touch with niam whether for the product or maybe for becoming one of your new talents what would be the best way they can do that go to the website now as everyone uh, everyone does that there is a separate page which is there for which positions are open for us for new employees if they want to be a part of our team and for you know both for sme and for uh, the corporate uh, kind of uh, this thing there is a i mean there is a way in which you can put your details in and we will get in touch with the the prospective customer awesome so what we'll do pratik is we'll include those links in our show notes as well so that they have it handy sure. and thanks once again for coming on the show and spending time with us thanks a lot pratik thank you so much it's been a pleasure guys do well that's it from india fintech diaries for this week do log on to your website indiafintechdiaries.com for exclusive content we also cover weekly fintech deep dives in a substack newsletter so do subscribe until next time mask on and stay safe